starting all the way back in chapter 1, we have seen that Paul has emphasized from the very beginning of this letter that the gospel is of divine and not human origin, which, is, which underlies everything else that he has to say about the gospel in this letter. Uh, it's of divine and not human origin, which means that it is fundamentally a gift from God, which is what Paul means by grace. It operates by, on, on God's terms, on divine terms, not on human terms. So, in Galatians 2, 15 through 21, which we looked at last week, we saw Paul declare that justification, or in other words, uh, good standing before God, is something that comes not on the basis of any human status or achievement, but rather trust in what God has done through Jesus Christ. So, not on the basis of our status or achievements, but rather what God has done through Jesus Christ. And so both of those things, all of that is um, background, so to speak, context for what Paul has to say in chapter 3. And as we get to chapter 3, what we see Paul doing is sort of transitioning in his overall argument in the letter to uh, giving scriptural proofs from the Old Testament to make his point. So he's basically uh, given his thesis statement, so to speak, in 2.15 through 21. Now he's going to turn to the Old Testament and give scriptural proofs from the Old Testament to support his point. And uh, in doing so, he will also begin to spell out some of the implications of justification by faith and God's grace. So, his main points, and there's a lot in uh, chapter 3, and the main points are really not uh, terribly complex, um, but the way that he goes about exegeting the Old Testament to derive those points is rather complex at times, and there's, it's easy to get lost in this chapter. So, what I've done is to try to give us a little bit of a roadmap up front to see where Paul is going. So, his main points in this chapter are going to be, number one, that justification was actually always by faith and not by the law, even in the Old Testament. Number two, the law was never meant to justify or make alive in the first place. That's not what the law is for. Number three, instead, its purpose was to make sin known and to call sin to account. So, not to justify people, but rather to call sin to account. Number four, the law was given to be a temporary guardian until Christ came. Uh, so, it served a sort of, whatever role it served was in part a temporary one. And then number five, where this leads us is to the fact that now we are all sons of God, using that uh, specific phrase um, in um, 327, or 326 maybe it is, um, we are all sons of God now through faith in Christ and faith in Christ alone, nothing more. So, no human status or achievement has any bearing on our standing before God at all. Um, because we are sons of God through faith in Christ alone, no human status or achievement has any bearing on our standing before God. All are one and the same in Christ, regardless of whatever human status or achievements you do or don't have. So, that's an outline of where he's going. Uh, what I'll do now is I'm going to read about half the chapter, probably through verse 14, and I'm going to pause there, and we'll work through that first half of the chapter first. So, starting in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul writes, 
you witless Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? The only thing I want to learn from you is this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing that leads to faith? Are you so witless? Having begun in the Spirit, are you going to finish in the flesh? Did you suffer so many things for nothing, if in fact it has been for nothing? So did the one who grants you the Spirit and performs miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing that leads to faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, so you know that it is those who are of faith who are children of Abraham. And Scripture, foreseeing that God would count the Gentiles righteous by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham in advance, saying, All nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed together with Abraham, who had faith. For as many as are of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not persevere in doing all the things written in the book of the law. And it is obvious that no one is justified by the law before God, for the righteous one will live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, so that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles in Christ, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit by faith." Okay, and so that's enough to chew on for a second, and we'll pause there before we uh, tackle the second half of the chapter. Um, all right, so going back up to verse 1, that first paragraph there, verses 1 through 5, uh, this is actually the first time in the letter, we're at chapter 3 now, but this is actually the first time in the letter that Paul has directly addressed the Galatians, and he calls them, you, you witless Galatians. Uh, some translations will say foolish, um, but the word that he uses here is not the normal word for foolishness. It means more something closer to um, ignorant than some sort of moral incompetence. The word fool in Scripture often has moral connotations. There's no moral connotation to this word exactly. It just means um, you're, you're not the brightest. You're, you're ignorant at the moment. Um, so he calls them, you witless Galatians. And his, his particular question to them, um, by the way, just to go back to something I've said in previous weeks real quick, we do see Paul at his most angry that we ever see him in any of his letters in Galatians. Uh, but reading carefully, we can really see that what we're dealing with here is the anger of a concerned pastor. And some of that pastoral concern for the Galatians comes out in this paragraph and through the rest of this chapter. Uh, but his question in motivating uh, this way that he addresses them is, is rather simple. Uh, how was it that you received the Spirit? When you received the Spirit of Jesus Christ, how did that happen? Did that happen because you were keeping the law, because you were observing Torah, or did that happen because you heard the message of the gospel and you trusted in it and you believed in what you trusted in what God had done through Jesus Christ? So, in other words, did it happen um, by uh, works of the law 
or by hearing that leads to faith? Uh, how was it that you actually received the Spirit in the first place? And he uh, sort of reiterates that question at the end of this paragraph in verse 5, so that the one who grants you the Spirit and performs miracles among you do it by works of the law or by hearing that leads to faith? Uh, so this is sort of a rhetorical question for the Galatians to chew on. Um, when you receive the Spirit, and when Christ performed miracles among you, did all that stuff happen because you were observing Torah, or did, or did that happen because you believed the gospel and trusted in Jesus Christ? Um, and then in, uh, verse, in verse 3, uh, building on this, he says, Are you so witless? Having begun in the Spirit, are you going to finish in the flesh? Now, the interesting thing about that question is he's making a dichotomy there between spirit and flesh um, as two different pathways that you can follow, so to speak. And uh, he effectively puts spirit on one side with faith here and law on the other side with flesh, which uh, is probably a little bit surprising to us. How, why is the law? Um, why does... Uh, observing Torah um, as a way of justification uh, equal finishing in the flesh? How do those two belong on the same side together? Well, Paul's reasoning here, this is again where it's important to remember how he began by setting up that basic dichotomy of that which is of divine origin versus that which is of human origin. And the gospel is something that is firmly of divine origin. It is a gift of God rather than something that comes from human beings on human terms. And so when Paul says the flesh, what he really means is that which is human. Um, which, which can be characterized as human, a human way. And so the question here, have you begun in the spirit, uh, having begun in the spirit, are you going to finish in the flesh, means, look, you started out with something that was of divine origin. Um, you started out uh, by, by following the spirit, by, by trusting in Christ and following, uh, trusting in that which was of divine origin. Are you now going to turn back to the law, which is actually something that is human? and so is therefore of the flesh. Um, so that's how that dichotomy works there, why, why law and flesh uh, belong on the same side. It's because law-keeping, keeping the law is a human standard, um, as Paul sees it. Um, now, that probably would have shocked a lot of Jews or Jewish Christian readers uh, that Paul sees keeping the law as a, as a human standard rather than a divine standard, but that is, in fact, what he's doing here. Um, and, uh, and so, finally, one other thing to note up front in this paragraph is verse 4, the, the seriousness with which Paul views this entire issue uh, comes out here. Did you suffer so many things for nothing, if in fact it has been for nothing? Uh, it, Paul, Paul really is saying to them, in effect, that if they seek justification by the law, if they seek justification on human terms, uh, then all will be for nothing. They will be rejecting God's grace, and they will be rejecting uh, Christ in doing so. Um, so that is what is at stake here, the, the very gospel and their very status as being in Christ. Um, 
So going on from that, um, this is where he gets into his first, after that little sort of introduction there, this is where he goes to the Old Testament and gives his first uh, scriptural argument from the Old Testament um, to prove how faith and the law have always worked. And so he turns to Abraham in verse 6. He says, just as Abraham, uh, quote, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, uh, that's a direct quote from Genesis 15:6. So you know that it is those who are of faith who are children of Abraham. So why does he turn to Abraham? Uh, what, what is it about Abraham? Well, Abraham, in Jewish tradition, uh, going all the way back to the Old Testament, was the paragon of justification, the paragon of what it meant to be justified before God. Uh, he's the first person in Scripture who is ever said to be justified, and that happens right there in Genesis 15:6, which he quotes. Uh, so he's the first person ever said to be justified, uh, the first person ever counted righteous, in other words. He's also the first person ever to make a covenant with God in Scripture, a direct covenant. Uh, now, I mean, there is the uh, covenant, the, the so-called Noachic covenant um, uh, before Abraham, but that's really a covenant with all of human beings um, descending from Noah at that point. Uh, Abraham is, is the first to make a personal covenant with God. He's also the first to be circumcised, and he's the chosen father of the Jewish people. Uh, so that's why you turn to Abraham. Um, and it's likely that Paul's opponents on the other side, the circumcision party, it's likely that they also went back to Abraham. Uh, if you're going to talk about justification, you talk about Abraham. Um, so, so Paul simply sets up the rhetorical question here. So, so let's talk about Abraham. How was Abraham justified when he was justified? How was it that Abraham was counted righteous? Um, it wasn't by works of the law. It was very clearly by faith. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So, uh, so when we go back to Abraham, we find that Abraham was justified by faith. Uh, the first person to be justified in Scripture, the paragon of justification himself, the father of the Jewish people, was justified by faith. Um, naturally then, Paul reasons, it is those who have faith, like Abraham had faith, who are, Ab who are Abraham's true descendants. This is an argument that he repeats in various ways a couple times in Romans later on. Uh, but it is those who are of faith, uh, who share the faith of Abraham, who are his true descendants. Um, he's, he's making a very interesting move here, saying that uh, the, the heirs of the promises made to Abraham will not simply be those who are of physical or ethnic descent from Abraham. It'll rather be those who share the faith of Abraham. And so, the, the point here is that justification was actually always by faith, regardless of whether we're talking about Jews or Gentiles. A justification has always been um, by faith. And, um, and so, moving on then uh, to the next paragraph, verses 10 through 14. Um, here he starts to talk about the law and faith as two separate paths to justification, and he compares the two. Um, you know, again, when we talk about justification, talking about who has good standing before God and on what basis. And uh, as he continues here, he argues that the law 
actually cannot justify anyone, and it never could. Uh, it was never even intended to. And his first basic reason for saying that here comes, again, he's quoting scripture left and right in this chapter. Um, and this comes from, this first quotation here comes from Deuteronomy 27, 26. But quoting Deuteronomy, he says, for as many as are uh, of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not persevere in doing all the things written in the book of the law. So the first basic reason why no one could ever be justified by the law is that uh, no one keeps it perfectly. No one ever has. No one can. And so by the words of the law itself, according to the law itself, if you don't keep the entire thing, you are cursed. You're under a curse. So how could the law ever justify you it, it, in, unless someone were able to keep it perfectly, which no one can? Um, it could not bring justification. It never could. And so Paul quotes the law itself in order to prove that actually the law could never, was never able to justify anyone. Uh, instead, and now he's going to quote Habakkuk 2.4 in a minute, but he says instead, you know, and it is obvious that no one is justified by the law before God, for the righteous one, this is Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous one will live by faith. Uh, so he's quoting a different part of Scripture now and saying, so instead, righteousness, in other words, justification, uh, has always been by faith. Uh, again, just to go back to something I said in a previous week, English isn't very helpful to us here. Uh, righteousness and justification as two separate words don't look anything like each other, and so we don't see the relationship between them. But if you were reading uh, Greek, or for that matter, Hebrew, uh, the words that we translate as righteousness and justice, uh, righteousness and justification, rather, are, um, are close, closely, they're, well, they're in the same family, and they look very much like each other. So if you were reading Hebrew or Greek, it's very obvious that righteousness and justification are more or less the same subject. Um, English just isn't very helpful to us there, but, uh, but when, so when he says, uh, so, so instead, righteousness, or in other words, justification has always been by faith, according to Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous one will live by faith. Um, then he goes on, the, but the law, the law works differently. The law is a different path than the path of faith, and that's clear because, he's going to quote more scripture here, um, he says, the law is not of faith, rather, quoting this time from Leviticus 18.5, he says, the one who does these things will live by them. So, in other words, uh, Habakkuk says that the righteous one, in other words, the person who is justified will live by faith. But the law says the one who does these things, in other words, the one who keeps the law, um, will live by them. So he's basically saying we can't be talking about the same thing here when we talk about the law and faith. We're talking about two separate paths, and uh, again, it's clear that if you follow the law path, you can't be justified by that because you can't keep the law perfectly, and therefore you're under a curse if you try. Um, and uh, on the other hand, Scripture is very clear that the righteous one is actually the person who lives by faith. The person who's justified will be the person who lives by faith. Moreover, he's got one more mini-argument mini packed into this paragraph. Moreover, uh, when Christ redeemed us, the, his very manner of redemption 
was to take on the curse of the law. How so? Well, because Christ was crucified. He was crucified on a piece of wood, another word, a tree. But Deuteronomy says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so, uh, so Christ, when he redeemed us, did so precisely by becoming a curse for us, taking on the curse of the law. And the, and the significance of that, the reason why that matters for Paul's present argument, is that if Christ redeemed us by becoming a curse for us according to the law, then that means that the redemption that he brings is thoroughly outside the law. Um, the way in which Christ redeemed us was completely outside of and apart from the law. Um, and so you've got basically three arguments packed into that one paragraph in verses 10 through 14. Uh, number one, um, the, the law cannot justify anyone and never could because nobody can keep it perfectly. Instead, Scripture actually says clearly that the righteous one, or in other words, the person who is justified, is the person who lives by faith. And thirdly, Christ himself, when he redeemed us, did so in a manner that was thoroughly outside of the law itself. Um, so, if we were to do a sort of half-time review of what Paul has uh, put together so far, what he's pulled out of Scripture, the Old Testament so far, and verses 1 through 14, uh, we could probably sum this up as two main points. So far, what Paul has argued is that justification was always by faith and not by the law. Abraham's own example proves that. And secondly, the law is not bad. He's not anywhere in here saying that the law is bad, but it was never meant to bring justification. Um, that is, it was never God's plan that good standing or worth would be equivalent to being a Torah-observant Jew. It is not being a Torah-observant Jew that gives you good standing or worth before God. That was never the plan. Um, and so, what he's done here uh, is, again, since we have Jewish Christian alternative missionaries coming to Gentiles and telling them, uh, look, Paul's not telling you the whole story. You actually have to be obedient to the law. You have to be a Torah. You have, you have to observe Torah in order to be part of God's family. Paul says, um, no, if you want to talk, if you want to talk about Jewish tradition, if you want to talk about the Old Testament scriptures, let's go there. And uh, he's pulled out one argument after another. Basically, this is Paul doing Old Testament exegesis to make his point and prove his opponents wrong. Um, okay. That was a lot in a very short space of time. So, uh, before I go on to the second half of the chapter, let me just ask, we probably have time for one or two questions if anybody has one. Yes, one second. I was wondering if you could elaborate more about um, why Moses says that the law is from man and not from God because the law was given by God. Yeah, uh, great question. So probably one of the most, uh, I think what would have been one of the most confusing arguments for Paul's original audience here is that the law is, the law is something, it basically equates to a human standard and not a divine standard because it does after all come from God. Um, 
And Paul will say that later in this very chapter. Um, and so I think that the issue here is that while the law is from God, um, keeping the law, observing Torah as a way to try to be justified before God makes justification about essentially either, uh, you can look at it a couple different ways. Uh, observing Torah, keeping Torah was how you symbolized that you were uh, a member of the people of Israel. Um, so there's that aspect of it. Um, and then there's also the aspect of, of, of simple morality. Um, and so you can look at keeping the law in two ways. Uh, if you're seeking to be justified by keeping the law, you are either saying that justification has to do with uh, being a part of the people of Israel, so has something to do with your an ethnic or national status, or you're saying that it has to do with how well you can keep the law, in other words, your moral achievements. And uh, either way, Paul is saying that if you, if you make justification, the law itself is from God, but if you make justification about our keeping of the law, then you are one way or another making about something that is human, um, either your ethnic status or your moral status, so to speak, your moral achievements. Um, and so maybe the easy way to sum that up is to say the law is from God, but what Paul is specifically concerned with here is our keeping of the law. And our, while the law is from God, our keeping of the law amounts to um, a human standard. Um, I think that's how Paul is understanding it. But uh, does that help somewhat? Thanks. Uh, uh, yeah, let's. Uh, Ken, I'll go to you first, and then I'll um, turn to you as well. Uh, could could you compare uh, verse three and the the contrast between spirit and flesh with the uh, same contrast in First Corinthians fifteen? If I can. Resurrection. Yeah. Let's see. So. 1 Corinthians 15 is a long chapter, and I'm trying to remember, I, I would need to look at it, to be honest, to, uh, and to be careful enough and, and, and to do, really do that justice. I'll, I'll just say this, that um, when Paul talks about the Spirit, he's almost inevitably talking about God's Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit, um, and, and sometimes a way of life that is characterized by God's Spirit. When he talks about the flesh, in a very broad and general sense, he's talking about things that are, that are purely human um, as opposed to being from God. Um, so that which is human versus that which is from God. Um, I think that probably applies in 1 Corinthians as well, but what I really need to do is go back and read Right. Um, yeah, and uh, so again, I, I want to go back and look at that really closely, um, but, the, but I do know one thing that he's doing there is um, describing the resurrection body as a body 
that is actually one of the differences between the resurrection body as, as opposed to our current body is that the resurrection body is a body that is animated by God's spirit itself um, and uh, somewhat different than our current body. So our current body, our current nature is um, something that is natural, physical, uh, whatever it will be then is something that is actually defined by God's own spirit. And um, it's hard to, that's a hard passage to explicate further because in part we're talking about something that none of us have seen yet. Um, but uh, that's probably the best I can do with it right at the moment. Um, and uh, This is a question regarding the Habakkuk reference. Uh, I think you told us uh, in a previous session that in, in the Greek, I think the, the word that we translate to faith is always talking about a you know belief and not any sort of work. Whereas in, in the, every time I look at that, you know, in the Old Testament, uh, there's a footnote saying you know faith or faithfulness. Um, I guess how do we know that in the the Habakkuk case in particular, but just in general in the Old Testament, is it talking about faith or faithfulness when it uses that word? Yeah, uh, great question. So uh, yeah, I want to be real careful here. Um, the words that get translated faith in both Hebrew and in Greek, um, either one, are capable of a somewhat broad range of meanings. So uh, you could, if they could mean faith as in, as in trust, the trust that we place in something. Um, they can also just as easily mean faithfulness, which if you think about it, faithfulness is how we actually demonstrate our trust. Um, and uh, they can, and it can also, both of those words can also be used to refer to the content of what someone believes. In other words, we can talk about the Christian faith, um, and when we do that, we actually mean uh, the thing that we believe um, itself, the, the message or the content. And um, the, the words used in the ancient world, uh, especially, I can say with Greek, um, the Greek word pistis uh, could mean any of those things, was capable of meaning any and all of them. Um, and so it's largely a matter of context, number one, to, uh, to decide, you know, how the word is being used in, in a given uh, situation. Um, but the, the other thing I will say is that those concepts simply were not as divided in uh, ancient thought as maybe we've made them today. Uh, in other words, what someone believed and the actions that they undertook uh, as a result of believing um, were, could be covered by the same word in part because they were not thought of as altogether separate ideas. Um, and so the, the other week when I talked about the fact that um, you know, faith in Christ here is referring to our trust in Christ um, and shouldn't be construed as another work. Um, my point there is that, is that trust is indeed how we respond to the gospel, how we respond to uh, God's gift in Jesus Christ. Uh, but to construe 
that trust as another work, as an achievement or something like that on a, of our own would be very strange. Um, it, you know, it would be the equivalent of if someone gives me a gift and I accept it, um, I can hardly take credit for that as my own work. Um, if someone, you know, if I were drowning in an ocean and somebody threw me a life preserver and I grabbed hold of it, I can hardly, I can call that my response to their gift, but I can't call that very easily my own work. That would be a very strange thing to do, uh, or to call that my own achievement somehow. Um, and so that was my point the other week. But before we get done with Galatians, we will see that um, in Paul's mind, trust in Christ uh, should very much be demonstrated in certain actions, um, in, in works that show that we actually have that, that trust. Um, if we say that we have trust in Christ, but we go on after that, uh, living no differently than we did before, um, then it could really be questioned uh, whether or not we actually have the trust that we say that we have. Um, and so, so that idea of faithfulness as part of that con the concept of faith uh, is not entirely lost here either. Um, so um, I hope that helps. Let me go ahead and move on now and see how much more we can get through here. Uh, so let me read verses 15 through the end of the chapter for us. Picking up in verse 15, Paul says, Brothers, I am speaking to you in human terms. All the same, once a human will is ratified, no one can reject it or add to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. It does not say, and to the seeds, in the plural, but rather in the singular, and to your seed, who is Christ. And I say this, the law that came, and I say this, the law that came 430 years later does not nullify a covenant previously ratified by God so as to abolish the promise. For if the inheritance had been from the law, it would no longer be from the promise, but God graced Abraham with it through a promise. So why the law? It was added as a grace because of transgressions until the seed should come to whom it was promised and put in place by angels by the hand of an intermediary. Now the intermediary does not serve only one party, yet God is one. So is the law opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that was able to make alive, then righteousness really would be from the law. But Scripture has shut up all things under sin so that the promise might be given by faith in Christ to those who have faith. Before faith came, we were held in custody under the law as those locked away for the faith that was about to be revealed. Thus the law became our tutor in Christ so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor. For you are all sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ. For as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male and female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are of Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Okay. Um, moving back up to verse 15. The next thing that we see Paul doing here, so he's talked about um, Abraham, he's talked about uh, faith versus the law as two different um, pathways to justification. 
Uh, now he's going to talk about Abraham and the law together. So uh, the first thing that he does here in verse 15 is he's comparing the covenant that God made with Abraham to a legal will. And the way that works is actually a play on words. The word for covenant and the word for will in Greek are the same word. Uh, so that's the basis of the comparison that he makes here between the covenant and a human will. And so he's using the, the way that a human will works as an analogy to the way that God's covenant with Abraham works. And the basic point that he's making up front here in verse 15 is that uh, once a will has been made, once it's been ratified, no one can alter it after the fact. Uh, you can't retroactively alter the will. So then he goes on to his next point. Um, reading Genesis 12, 7 very closely, Paul seizes upon the fact that the singular seed is used here rather than the plural seeds. Uh, now, the singular seed is really interest, is an interesting term um, in either English or Hebrew, and this works about the same way. It, it's, it's sort of a collective term, so we can say seed and actually be referring to a collective group, um, you know, or we could be referring to an individual seed. Um, and so, but what Paul is doing here is he's seizing upon the fact that that word is singular in Genesis 12, 7, and he's arguing that it refers directly to Christ as an individual. Uh, in other words, Abraham's true heir that was spoken of in Genesis 12, 7 was always Christ. Um, it wasn't just anyone. It wasn't a group of people. It wasn't, um, uh, you know, all Israelites. It was very specifically Christ. And, uh, and then his next point is that the law, on the other hand, comes 430 years later. So you can read about that in Exodus 19 through 24, um, but this is about 430 years later when, um, when the law is given uh, to Moses uh, at Sinai, uh, 430 years after God's covenant with Abraham. And so his point here is that just as you can't alter a will after the fact, you also can't alter the covenant or the covenant promises after the fact. And the law came 430 years after Abraham, uh, so it can't change the original terms of the covenant. So then, it matters that the true heir to God's promises uh, to Abraham is still Christ. If it was then, if, if, the, if the heir in Genesis 12, 7 was referring to Christ, it's still referring to Christ because you can't alter it. Um, and so then what we see here, the point is that not only was God's promise to Abraham, uh, his justification, always by faith, but it was actually always pointing toward Christ and waiting to be fulfilled by Christ. In other words, um, uh, what happened with Abraham, the promises made to Abraham were always waiting for fulfillment uh, in Christ and are not altered by the law in the meantime. Um, and one, one final point in verse 18 that's interesting is how Paul describes this. Um, he says, but God graced Abraham with it through a promise. Um, 
And so, so all of this, Paul actually describes as God's grace, his gift to Abraham, which even for Abraham was not on the result of any status or works of his own, but was purely a gift from God. When Abraham was justified by, by God, it was also a gift, just as it is also a gift in our case. Um, going down to 19 through 22 then. Uh, all of this could lead us to ask, so, so what we've seen so far is that justification was always by faith, it was not by the law. Uh, the law is not bad, but it was never meant to bring justification. That's not what the law does. Um, and, uh, and so all of this could lead us to ask the question, so what is the point of the law anyway? Why did God give the law? Um, is, it, is it worth anything? And so, Paul seems to anticipate that question and, and asks as a rhetorical question in verse 19, so why the law? Why was the law given anyway? Uh, any, any answers? In the first place, it was added, uh, for in the first place, how he describes it is, is incredible here, uh, it was added as a grace because of transgressions. Um, and so, the law, as far as Paul is concerned, is also grace. The law is a gift from God, um, but it was given specifically because of sin, because of our sins, um, both to make them known, to make sin known to us, and to call sin to account. And in that way, it functions as a gift. It does two things for us, uh, making sin known and calling it to account, um, showing us exactly what it is that has to be dealt with. Now, verse 20 is where things, um, well, no, the end of verse 19, um, we have one of the strangest, uh, most puzzling uh, parts of this whole chapter, has puzzled many New Testament scholars and continues to do so. Um, but Paul argues here uh, that, um, uh, that, that when the law, was, seems to be saying that when the law was given to Moses, um, it was given... Uh, through, through angels, through an intermediary. And so he's actually separating the giving of the law just a little bit from God himself. It was a gift of God, but it was given through an intermediary. Um, and that's not something that we actually read about in Exodus, which is part of the reason why this has puzzled scholars so much. But it does seem to be what he's saying. Um, you know, it was put in place by angels by the hand of an intermediary. And so one way to understand this is perhaps that Paul might be thinking about something like the angel of the Lord, which we sometimes see um, throughout the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord stands in for God himself at times, uh, representing God's own presence. And sometimes uh, there are places in the Old Testament where uh, the Lord himself and the angel of the Lord are used interchangeably. Uh, and so... Paul may be thinking of something like that. One way or another, it seems that he's arguing that the law was put in place by angels acting as intermediaries of, uh, of God. Um, in verse 20, though, his point here is that uh, an intermediary, when we have, if you have a mediator, um, a mediator does not serve only one party, um, yet God is one. So his point there is that the law was never meant to serve God alone. A mediator serves more than one party, so it can't just be serving God. Uh, it's also serving us. Um, and it does so by mediating 
between a sinful humanity and a holy God, um, precisely by making sin known and calling it to account. Um, so, so it does these things, which are good, um, and in that way it is a gift from God. But what the law uh, cannot do um, is, is actually deal with the sin that it points out. It makes sin known, it calls it to account, but it's powerless to deal with it. Um, and that, instead, is what Christ has done. It's what Christ has done that the law could not do uh, to actually deal with the problem of sin that the law made known. Um, and so, so, the, so what he's saying again here is that, look, the, the law is in no way bad. Um, the law is, is actually, he can describe it as grace. He describes it as a gift from God. Um, but while the law is not bad, while it may be a gift from God, it is still, uh, it is a limited gift. Um, it has limits. Um, its role was always to make sin known and call it to account. It is powerless to actually deal with sin. Um, instead, that is what Christ does. Um, and now we're over time by two minutes, so I really do have to stop here. And I kind of figured this might happen, uh, so what I'll do next time is pick up with uh, verse 20, pick up in verse 23 and finish that chapter and then move into chapter four. Um, but uh, hopefully I haven't left us in a state of utter confusion. Um, if so, send me emails or uh, I'll be back next week. Um, thank you all. <laughs>